Hello, hello everyone. This is scriptwriter Steve. Today is January 16th, 2021. You've reached Barbecue 2 Movies, the podcast. It is 2.35 a.m. in the morning. It's crazy. Every time I do my podcast, I I blurt out the time. <laughs> I always people people email me and say, Wow, Steve, what the hell are you doing up talking to us? Uh, part of it's insomnia. Part of it is because I do all of my creative work at night, and part of it is because, well, that's when I want to talk to you. I have a lot of free time, because in the daytime, I'm doing my regular business thing. And, uh, well, not today. I did a lot of playing today. Uh, today was kind of my day off. Uh, my uh, good old friend, Pitmaster Keith, he had the day off, and then we uh, headed over um, to get some dinner, then met up with my other friend, uh, Keone, who's a incredible cameraman and uh, camera prop uh, film prop maker he makes all of these weapons for movies and tv shows it's amazing and we just cruised over at his place and uh he we we're just talking complete nerd talk actually about star wars and and how star wars could be better and probably things that you would if i were to probably get into it you probably jump off a building so i'm not going to get into it by the way if you hear like a bird chirping in the background it's because I am on my speakerphone on my cell phone, and it's very sensitive, and that bird likes to make noise. Even at 2.36 a.m. in the morning, it can't figure out that it should be sleeping right now. And if I ever see its name, it starts you know, chirping out really late, so I'm not going to be even mentioning his name right now. So anyway, I wanted to get into um, some screenwriting things here, which kind of apply to um, what's going on, uh, what we saw in the Capitol, what's going on in politics, and uh, what... Um, Kind of like uh, it, it applies really to, to storytelling and te- storytelling and creating characters. So um, it's called counterphobia, and uh, it's something that I think will interest you who are non-writers, and will really interest you if you are a writer because it's actually it's not a mental disorder. It's uh, oh, let's see, what could I brand it here? It's actually uh, and it's not a mental illness. Okay, it's a way of thinking. And it's and it's a very way of un uh, of unhealthy thinking, and it's basically counterproductive. We all go through the um of, of uh, I guess levels of counterphobia throughout our entire life, and sometimes it can be very very good. Uh, if we don't exercise it correctly, it can turn into a very bad thing. And one thing you have to recognize with when you deal with mental health or characters or creating characters or writing characters is that nothing is even though there there are absolutes that. I guess exist in this world, <sighs> you know, it, it, things are not absolutely bad or absolutely good, even though there there are absolutes. Kind of doesn't make sense, right? So, so I'll get more into that right after these messages. You know how it is. I have to pay the bills, and then right after that, I'll get into it. All right. Uh, we're not going to talk politics today. Eh, kind of may touch upon it, but we'll talk more about movie making characters and this counterphobia stuff, and just focus on that. All right, I'm back. I hope you're back. I really hope you're back because I think you're about to learn something good. Now, let's dive straight into the subject of counterphobia. Now, I did talk about this in my earlier podcast. Um, I do talk about this in some screenwriting podcasts. And this is, by the way, a Screenwriting Saturdays podcast, but it applies to everything. Even if we're talking about politics or, or mental health or anything, because when you write... You are not creating fictional characters. You are creating real-life characters in a fictional world. 
You know, that's very, very, very important. And when we analyze characters or analyze people in real life, we have to take a, the first thing we should always analyze is to, is to see if they are actually acting out through counterphobia or counterphobic actions, because it is probably one of the most common ways, I guess, of, of retaliation, um, of anger um, in this world, in this, in this, uh, I guess in this social media world, um, people, okay, now before I get in here, I'm getting ahead of myself. Counterphobia, now, <laughs> counterphobia literally means to destroy what you are paranoid of. So, counterphobia is like, you know, when you counterattack, it's a, it's a methodology of attack, right? Um, it's to punch back, counter, right? And then phobia is what you are paranoid of. Or what you have an irrational fear of. So, say for example, and I, I and I talk about this a lot. Say for example, if I had a a phobia of an elevator, and uh, and I would go to my therapist and say, "Well, I'm very scared of these elevators," and uh, she says, "Well, come back tomorrow, and we'll talk about this. And we're going to work on this for the next month." So I come back tomorrow and I tell her, "Well, you know." I'm not scared of elevators anymore. She says, how can that be, Steve? How can you be not scared of it? As it's real easy, I just destroyed the building. There's no elevator anymore. That's counterphobia, right? By the way, I don't see any therapists. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not that bad yet. You know, I'm still kind of staying in the head. But that's what counterphobia is. You destroy what you are afraid of or have this paranoid fear of. So phobia is also, so when we break it down, it's very important that we label phobia as an irrational fear, what you are paranoid of. So you're not rationally thinking correctly. So say, for example, I'm afraid of elevators or escalators for what reason? Even if there, I may have had uh, an injury in it at one time, that's an irrational fear that I have. You know, like a arachnophobia or a scared of heights or something like something that we really can't explain that we, that we shouldn't be there, right? That, that, it, that it should not exist, especially when we take a look at the evidence involved um, of, of what, the, what the surrounding circumstances give us, right? So we have to make sure before we label anyone counterphobic that they, are, they have an irrational fear, phobia. Very, very, very important part of the word. Okay, so counterphobia is a compound word, by the way. It's not two words. It's one word, counterphobia, counterphobic. So in case you ever want to uh, look it up. And the way they define it on the internet or from uh, in the dictionary is as this. A compulsion to seek out the causes of fear or anxiety instead of avoiding them. Well, that's a very loose interpretation. My interpretation, very clearly, it's basically destroying what you fear. It's a lot easier to understand that. You're not seeking out the causes of fear. That's the very liberal way and very soft way of doing it. When you're a counterphobic, you literally destroy it. And this is why we have today what they call cancel culture. Instead of having a conversation. So, for example, I'm a Trump supporter, right? Now, if you're a Biden supporter or a Hillary Clinton supporter, you may automatically think, that I'm a racist, I'm a white nationalist, I'm this, I'm this, I'm, you know, I'm really, really bad, and, 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 and I'm a misogynist, and all these bad things. All those fears of me are irrational, because I'm not any of that. And then, what do you do to our 20-year friendship, or like 10-year friendship, or whatever? Instead of talking it out with me, 
You unfriend me on Facebook and you unfriend me in real life. You cancel me. That's counterphobic. All right. The official, the official interpretation, the official word of cancel culture is counterphobia. All right. And that's what you have to understand. And there are all different levels of this because if we practice counterphobia on a very minor scale, because certain things that we do have, um, that we think we're paranoid of, like say, for example, we're thinking in our mind, am I just being paranoid or, or is it actually intuition that is kicking in here? And should I actually destroy this, right? For example, if this what, if a, if a woman and it has a husband and she says, well, I think he's cheating on me. I have all of this evidence. He comes home late. He's talking to a secretary too long. He smells like perfume and he goes on these vacations. We're well, not vacations, but these business trips with her and say they're working late. It just doesn't seem right. Really, should I end my marriage? Now, she is acting with counterphobia. She wants to destroy something that she may be paranoid of. So she has to make sure. Now, at a very minor level, this counterphobia is good because it makes you think. But here's the thing. We don't want to actually jump into the um, jump the gun and have her say, I think you should seek out a divorce. That becomes counterphobic because now she's destroying a marriage and maybe he actually is working late. Maybe there is nothing going on with the secretary. Maybe he is, she is overreacting, right? And maybe the circumstantial evidence doesn't present that. That's the thing. So that very thin line, so if we ever, we ever start thinking and you ever start theorizing, you have to really, really, you have to be your own person, pull yourself back from that level of paranoia. Don't go down that rabbit hole. And it's very easy for us to start writing our own storylines. And that's when paranoia, irrational fear kicks in. Now, what happened at the state capitol on January 6th, you saw a lot of that. Um, and I'm not going to say that um, Antifa was completely there because now Antifa, they are they practice counterphobia, all right. But we're going to get into the the left and the Democrats and everything into that later on. But so, but the same thing happens on the right. On the right, they believe that you know the, the government will turn to the socialist thing and 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 um, and all of these bad things will just happen to them and just pile it pile it on. And I don't want to list all of them. And it all came down to Donald Trump must protect us from pedophiles from, you know, uh, uh, all of these things uh, from like uh, the country going to socialist, from the economy crashing and all that. And, and here's the thing. A lot of that actually may be true, okay? But should you destroy things that you you feel yet can't necessarily prove yet, even though there's great circumstantial evidence? And that's what you saw a lot of people on the right doing. Okay, there may be proof that so-and-so is a pedophile. There may be proof. And, and here's the thing. If you are a liberal saying, oh, well, I think this is all of a conspiracy theory. And to be honest, I'm kind of getting off the subject here. But these people who are QAnon kept accusing, well, there's certain people who are definitely pedophiles and there's a, there's a pedophile ring going on. And they were talking about that. They were like blurting this from the, screaming it from the hill. And everyone says, well, you are just being flat out paranoid. And then all of a sudden, you start seeing Kevin Spacey fall. You know, all of everyone fall. All you know, and then you started seeing these some of these celebrities who were involved with cults who would recruit re recruit young women to become sex slaves. 
And then you saw Jeffrey Epstein and how they recruited everyone to have these sex slaves. And then you saw the people who were involved with Jeffrey Epstein. And by the way, that's bad news. Now, was Trump involved with Jeffrey Epstein? Actually, no. He was actually a whistleblower, and he worked with the FBI to get Jeffrey Epstein. But were there, were there other Republicans and Democrats involved with Jeffrey Epstein? You bet. And what did Jeffrey Epstein do to make money? We really don't know that yet. Well, we do know he was, he was actually involved with sex trafficking. Now, do the people on his list that he would work, that took a trip to the island with him, were they guilty of sex with minors? I say it looks like it, but we can't prove it. Okay, but even if it looks like it, we shouldn't go to the counterphobic stage and destroy things just because they are who they are. All right, and I want to make sure I make that very clear when I talk about counterphobia. I don't want to go there. I have to check myself in, in there and say, whoa, am I getting a little too paranoid? Do I feel like I just want to destroy something, knock something out? And because you're, when you get to the stage, you are filled with anger and hate. And anger and hate is what powers our superego, what <laughs> our entire soul is almost powered on anger and hate. We operate with much more adrenaline when we're angrier. And it's so easy to go to that dark place. And we have to, so we have to really check ourselves. So even for myself, when I'm talking for myself, we have to be very careful. Pull yourself back. And what we saw happening there on January 6th was a lot of Trump supporters angry, fearful. Some of them very much paranoid. The QAnon phenomenon. You know, whether or not I agree or disagree with it, for most of the part, I do disagree with a lot of what they're saying. But it does push people more so into this fearful and paranoia look. And it, it pushes them to a point where they say, well, the only way to, to, to like uh, fix the system right now is to break the system. Now, what does that sound like? Now, let's move over to the left. BLM, Black Lives Matter, and Antifa believe the same thing. They have to break the system in order to fix the system. Well, they sound just like QAnon. They sound just like radical Republicans because they're both the same at the end. They may, they may, they may get there differently, but the reasons for becoming counterphobic may be one million percent different, which, by the way, they are. And they may have a very, in their mind, a very justified reason to justify why they're canceling and destroying the United States government. But it's both are unhealthy. Very, very, very unhealthy. Now, you're probably asking yourself, well, Steve, what type of character, what type of personality type is more than more likely to actually become counterphobic? And the truth is, is that there every single personality type out there is capable of becoming counterphobic. Now, for me, I teach the Enneagram for screenwriting because I feel the Enneagram is extremely easy to learn. And then again, it separates people into nine different personality types. Now, I talked about this in an earlier podcast. If you don't listen to my screenwriting Saturdays, I'm making my way through the nine different personality types who are currently now on, top, on type five. But I don't want to get into that. But there is one type of personality type, which is called the type six personality and the type 6 personality, on the healthy side, they're called the loyalist. 
the loyalist. They are looking for a rescuer because they are so fearful of themselves. Like every other personality out there, they have certain fears. Like for myself, I have a fear of being wrong. Some people have a fear of being loved, a fear, a fear of like trying to find their identity, of not, of not knowing who they are, or a fear of being used for too weak. The type six fears themselves. They fear themselves so much that they can't believe in their own opinion. So they have to buy into groupthink. They have to buy into a church, what the church may tell them, what the military may tell them, what this group may tell them, what Antifa may tell them, what QAnon may tell them. This is, and they are followers. They are not, not leaders at all. All right. And they just basically abide by this. Now, here's the problem. What happens if their leader is counterphobic? Well, that's where you get this huge problem. They can turn counterphobic very easily. And then all of a sudden you have this group that is so fearful, so paranoid, and they operate like a cult and they want to destroy things, even destroying themselves. And that's why you have all these cults. Yeah, let's suicide when the comet flies by. Remember that? I think they were called the... What were they called? I think they were called... Oh, jeez, I forgot their name. But there, there was a Hellbop comet that came by and they all killed themselves. That's crazy, right? But again, the leader was counterphobic and they, be all, came, be, they all came counterphobic and they feared the human, the human experiment and they, and they all committed suicide. How do you like that? And this is very common within cults. And to say that, well, it's a QAnon, a cult-like thing. Well, it, it does become like that. And I know Republicans are going to be like, oh, no, Steve, you can't say that. I'm sorry, that's the truth. And Antifa is very cult-like. We have to destroy the government, tear it all down. Now, counterphobia, again, it does operate on a very you know, individual level too because when that type 6 loyalist, per- loyalist personality, they are more likely to be fearful of themselves and fearful of, and fearful of you. They have trust problems. When they can't trust themselves, they can't trust you. They only trust groupthink for the most part. And growth for the um, type 6 loyalist, by the way, is breaking away from groupthink and applying their loyalty to a single entity without fear and, and making sure they trust that one person or two people or, or, or the individual and start to think on their own. But here's the thing. When they're unhealthy, they have a, they have a tendency to be untrustworthy untrust, to even their closest friends to think that, whoa, are you trying to steal my company when they're not? Are you trying to steal my ideas when they're not? I've encountered people like this. You know, are you trying to steal my wife? Are you trying to, are you trying to steal my boyfriend? Are you trying to steal my, my car? What are you trying to do? And it's completely paranoia type of thing. It's crazy. You can be straight and you're thinking, are you trying to steal my boyfriend? <laughs> it's like, no, dude, I'm freaking straight. <laughs> right? Really? I mean, it, it honestly happened. It's like, are you, are you serious? Really? You want to go there? Okay. So this is like a, a character type. It's, is, it a, is it a mental illness? Absolutely no. All right? And is it, is it actually fixable? 
Yes, it is. Very easily. That's why it's not a mental illness. All you have to do is a person who is counterphobic literally has to open their mind and open their mind to themselves. Instead of, instead of thinking and repeating what the group thinks, think for yourself and think the opposite. Make, it, make an effort to think opposite of what the group thinks. So, for example, if you are a hardcore Republican, now, well for, now for me, I am a hardcore Trump supporter. I really am. I like the guy. I, I really like his rhetoric. Um, I listen to it. I enjoy it. I laugh. But then I always check myself at the door and I read the negative comments that people leave me. I read the opposite side. I, I watch CNN and I, I watch it with an open mind just to make sure that to say that, whoa, wait, wait, wait a minute. Am I wrong? Have I already gone down the rabbit hole? And it's really important that we check ourselves with this because you don't want to spend too much time going down that rabbit hole and living there and spending so much of your life in this world of paranoia. And the longer you're in there, by the way, it's it's harder to pull you out. It's harder for yourself to pull you out because you've dedicated so much of your life to it. And here's the thing. If someone comes out toward you and says, hey, wait a minute, this is wrong and here's why, you are more likely to say, hey, wait a minute, you're canceled and you're canceled and you're canceled. And this is what we see more so on the left. By the way, there are more type six loyalists on the left than the right. All right. Way, way, way more. On the right, we have more type one reformers. On the, on the right, we have more type three achievers. Right. On the left, we have more type four individualists, type five intellects and type six and, and type six um, loyalists. All right. It's not to say that we don't have all personality types on both sides. It's just which, how, what the parties are made up of. But that's why on the left, when barking orders come down from the top, like say, for example, Nancy Pelosi comes out and says, well, global warming is an existential threat. Every single Democrat down the line will say, well, global warming is an existential threat. Now, give us a reason why. Well, here's my talking points. So they'll, they'll actually say, well, here's one talk, talking point, one, two, and three, four. And you literally get that on Facebook. And they repeat that over and over. The, the professors, then the people on Facebook, and then your friends and your mom and all that. It goes all the way down. They all use the same terminology. When you challenge them, they can, and they don't know how to counter you or counterpunch you, right? Because they're not really a good debater. They, they don't really, they're not there to debate. They're there to follow. They're there to be part of a trend. Well, that's when they get really mad. And they feel, and they're also programmed to say, well, if that person doesn't actually believe, then they're part of the problem. And this is the problem that I see on the left and also on the right, that if a person doesn't believe, then they're part of the problem. It shouldn't be that way. I, I mean, I don't like it when the Republicans say, hey, you know what, <laughs> you know, so-and-so is part of the problem. They need to actually be, you, know, you need to get that person out of your life. No, I don't think so. Accept that person for the opinion that they have. And I always tell people, hey, I, don't, I really don't care what your opinion on the politics are, your religion or anything. I am this way. I am proud. I believe what I believe. But you can believe what you believe. But some people on the right and a lot of people on the left have a problem with that. And it's sick. 
and this is also a big problem right now, what I see, is that counterphobia is celebrated. Why are we celebrating counterphobia? It's not a good thing. Why are we celebrating, for example, if someone says something, they'll say, whoa, look at this person and all that. I'm going to screen capture what they wrote and make a fool out of themselves, right? And I'm going to make, try to make everyone hate you. I'm going to try to make everyone to hate your business so we, can, so we can cancel your business. You don't even deserve to be in business. You want to hear how bad it is? Parlor, Parler, they actually got their whole business canceled. Because Amazon thought, well, what you're saying is inciting a, inciting a riot. <laughs> Let me be very clear about this. Black Lives Matter, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, um, Maxine Waters, uh, a lot of Democrats. I, w- I don't want to name all of them. They have said things, literally said things. that They said... <laughs> If a, if a, basically, if a Republican is out there in public, you know, surround them, don't let, make them sure they're known, they don't belong here, get in their face and shout them out of here. And this is when Republicans were going over to restaurants and angry mobs were surrounding them and then yelling at them. That's horrible. And they were writing that and they weren't banned from Twitter. Twitter's used the primary, here's the thing too. The the primary function of social media is to socialize. People don't always socialize very nicely in in any form. Even in person, there's catfights. People argue in real life. That's just part of socializing. There's drama in real life. That's why we have reality TV shows like The Bachelor. You literally have people arguing and you want to cancel that. Completely. So if we watch The Bachelor and we see people arguing, why do we cancel the entire series? It doesn't make any sense, right? Well, they're inciting violence. A lot of times there, there is violence on The Bachelor. There's violence on reality TV shows. In fact, their behavior doesn't really inspire children to, very, to act very good. Should we cancel it? No. <laughs> so this is what we have right now. We have Amazon, we have Apple, we have Google. They are actually, their platforms are used to promote counterphobia. But they themselves are counterphobic. They're CEOs and they say, well, we have to destroy um, speech that we consider hateful and incited violence. Which, by the way, if we look under it, (laughs) we look under Trump's speech, it did not incite violence. The people there showed up with bad intentions, they showed up with ladders, gas masks, helmets. People don't show up like that to a rally to be peaceful. So that means a speech had no influence on them. Even though there were counterphobic MAGA people there, and I, I bet because, again, groupthink, right? You have the counterphobics right there, or the people with bad intentions. The people with bad intentions, by the way, they're probably, they're probably past... The former, you know, the stage of redemption. And they may be actually type one reformers or type eight challengers, um, and they'd be counterphobic in their own way. But they're out there, they're lawbreakers. And, and again, you have the type six loyalists who are just followers on both sides. And all of a sudden you see, hey, wait a, wait a minute, the, the momentum is going this way. Well, why don't we just follow? 
You know, it's just bad. It's really bad. And, and this type of group mentality, this group thing, this group counterphobic thing, it just snowballs. It, it always snowballs like this. And it's bad because, I mean, say, for example, you have a black, well, we'll go on the other side. You have a Black Lives Matter protest. Then all of a sudden Antifa goes there and they start breaking windows and they start, you know, stealing things. It doesn't take many people to move people who were marching for George Floyd or marching for a really good cause, right? Because even though I disagree with Black Lives Matter's like you know your mission statement and everything like that, um, I do I do say that a lot of them fall victim to this counterphobia thing, and they then they start thinking, well, since everyone else is stealing, I'm just gonna go get new sneakers. I'm just gonna go get a new iPhone. I'm gonna go help steal uh, steal steal an iPad from Apple. I'm going to go help ransack Target. It's okay. Everyone else is doing it. And they're not getting caught. So they do, they do this over and over and over again. And this is where you turn people and kids with no, you know, no, no um, criminal record, they, they turn into criminals. Horrible. And again, this is, what, this is more so what you see on the left. And you see it more with Black Lives Matter and Antifa because their ideals align more with each other. Antifa doesn't have to go very far to convince a Black Lives Matter protester to actually break into a target. They just have to break into a target for them and show the momentum's there. And that those Black Lives Matter protesters who are mostly kids and college kids will think, whoa, okay, everyone, everyone else is getting new sneakers. Everyone else is getting a, a new TV. Maybe I can get some get my own. You know, and then on top of that, you have Black Lives Matter organizers who are telling their followers, their Type Six loyalists, "Well, reparations is just part of, it's just part of. I mean, stealing is just part of reparations." So now they're validating again their counterphobia, and they're saying, "This is normal. This is just." Got a big problem with that. Anyway, this is. This right here is what many characters are written about, about in the movies. Thanos. Thanos was a typical counterphobic, right? He was uh, scared of what ha- may happen to the world, completely paranoid. And in order to, you know, fix everything, he said, I have to destroy all humans. Simply, simple like that. Typical counterphobic. Now, even murderers, right? A serial killer can actually say, well, wow, this, you know, women, I can't trust women. I have a bad problem with women. You know, they, they ripped me off this and everything like that. And now I'm just going to, you know, I can't trust any of them. So they'll kill them. They deserve to be canceled. And there, there you go. You get, you have a, you actually have a serial killer. Or how about the father who comes home, kills all the kids and the wife because he got fired from his job. And he and he fears that, well, I can't pay for uh, um, all of my family. They're going to have a horrible life. Well, I can't just go. I'm going to kill everyone. I'm going to cancel everyone. <clears throat> That's counterphobic. You see, counterphobia has all different versions. Now, again, you should get used to this word. You're not going to hear this word out there. You're not going to hear it out there in the public because they don't know about this word. If you study personality types, if you study the Enneagram, you're going to hear it a lot. Um, but other than that, you won't. It's, um, it's basically known as cancel culture. Not healthy. 
Okay, everyone. Um, why don't we get into the politics of everything later on? Um, I'm going to come back uh, after these messages. Hope you join me after that. But we're, I think we've talked enough about counterphobia. And uh, I want to get into um, some actions that are actually counterphobic. Get more into it. All right? So I will talk to you soon, right after these messages. Okay. All right, everyone. I am back. And I think we killed that other topic about counterphobia. Now, I don't really want to go too much more into counterphobia at all. Um, I'll just say this. Um, uh, try to always think mentally healthy. What I say, you may disagree with. All right? I, what I may say may trigger you. What I say may even be wrong. All right? You may even disagree with the way I teach screenwriting. That's fine. But it's always good. And by the way, it's always good to even disagree or to be a healthy skeptic. But it's also very good to catch yourself before you go into that rabbit hole of paranoia. We always want to avoid being counterphobic no matter what. We don't want to go out there and destroy friendships, destroy relationships with people, destroy businesses, anything, anything um, on evidence that is purely circumstantial. Now, if there's evidence that are involved in, say, for example, and you know, if Trump was the supervillain that the left actually advertised and it's all true, well, then I would probably say, well, I wouldn't support that guy. All right. But because the evidence has not been solid and it's really not solid, here I am still supporting him. Okay. Now, what I want to get into now is about, um, it's going to be a really quick, uh, a really quick, um, I guess, description of how I actually uh, write stories. Now, a lot of people think that when you write a story, we, especially for any professional writer or storyteller, that you automatically get the, um, get the story right in the first place, the first try, the first draft. That never happens. It really, really never, ever, ever happens. Uh, every story out there, it has to go through a rewrite and a lot of rewrites. And what are we doing when we rewrite things? Well, when you rewrite things, you are rewriting, number one, is you're rewriting the characters to make sure these characters act and react correctly according to their lore, according to what's canon in their world, and according to the, the, their personality type that you have assigned them. So, for example, um, I was writing, uh, I was actually, I'm writing a, um, a story with Batman right now. Um, this is a purely a fan fiction thing that I'm doing. And, um, and I noticed in my second act, this is the middle of the story, that Batman wasn't being Batman. And part of what Batman is that he's very investigative, he's very intuitive, um, but he's also very much a black and white person. You are, you are either on this side or that side of the law. Batman is a type one reformer. And he's, an, he's a very unhealthy type one reformer. So he can actually, if you do something bad that's against the law and he's your best friend, he will arrest you, even if he loves you. That's, that's him right there. Right and wrong, black and white. You're either with me or against me. And he has a lot of trust issues with people because he thinks they all can actually be bad. What happens if Superman goes bad, etc., etc. So he's always very skeptical. But I notice in my script that I have, 
um, Batman wasn't being investigative and intuitive and all these different types of things, maybe halfway through the script. So I have to write in a few more scenes. Um, when I brought it to Keith, um, we noticed that, wait a minute, you know, these few scenes and all that, he's not being investigative. We have to write it a little bit better to be more canon and um, to be more investigative. And uh, that's what we ended up doing. So we're not yet. Um, we had to, and we, we're going to be doing it. So you just got to figure out how he's going to be investigative. And that's the thing when you start rewriting re- rewriting books or rewriting your story. You're not looking for spelling errors. A lot of people think, especially you know, beginning writers, say, oh, I, I'm going to do a rewrite. And it's just about dotting your I's, crossing your T's, making sure you know this paragraph is, this paragraph is long enough or not short enough and everything like that. No. Um, that's, that is pretty much the, the last thing you have to worry about. Um, the main thing is you have to worry about is your story and whether or not the characters are acting correctly. Um, be very careful about that. Now, another thing is I want to tell you is that you need to respect, if you are a writer, you need to respect the canon. You really have to do that. Writers not don't take your own agenda and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to make my own interpretation of this character because I have an agenda that I want to preach in here that, you know, all women are strong, global warming, or that, you know, the gov- government has too much power and I want to have more gun rights and all those different types of things. No, you don't, you don't do that. If when you do that, then you're driving the story. Okay. You may have a character that may be like that, that may be more conservative, more liberal, or may have, or have all these different types of things, okay? But you yourself don't write the story. Don't force it. And always pay attention to the lore. You have to do that because right now I am seeing so many professional writers, um, professional screenwriters right now, and they're not like the ones in the 90s. They are just pushing their own agenda right now out there and just disrespecting the canon. And that's what happened with The Last Jedi, The Rise of Skywalker, right? Um, This is what happened with Ghostbusters, um, Ghostbusters 3. You know, they used all women in Ghostbusters 3 just because they wanted all women. It wasn't natural and it felt forced. You know, this is is the reason why. And we had to have like, you know, um, token females in there. And they had to be funny. They had to be funnier than the males. And it was, it didn't work. And that's why a lot of people didn't end up seeing it. And even though I, I own it, and I thought, hey, wait a minute, this is, this is pretty funny. I only bought it because of the, the scene with Chris Hemsworth because I thought that was so funny. And Chris Hemsworth, who's not even a comedian, outshined all of the women comedians. And um, that's what happens. That storyline doesn't call for four women, not at all. You have to rewrite another storyline, you know, to make it more natural. And uh, that's all I have to say right now. So anyway, those are my tips right now when you start writing. Huh. Um, one more tip. Uh, why don't we talk about writer's block really quick? Now, for me, I don't get writer's block. When you're a professional, you don't get writer's block. You may get stumped a little and say, yeah, I don't think so. I can. And you start writing things and here and there. You may start writing different scenarios, but you don't get writer's block at all. And the reason why, again... You don't get writer's block is because your characters are so alive, they write the story for you. There, there should come a point 
where your story just writes itself and you're just putting the words on the paper. That's it. That is it. That is it. If you are having a struggle, say, oh, I wonder how the third act will actually end. I wonder what happens in the second act. Is the mid- You know, <laughs> that means your story isn't writing yourself. All right? And, you know, a lot of times we do rewrite things before you have to rewrite things to make sure things were like, you know, you had to hit the commercials, right? You know, the scenes, make sure they last long enough. But even then, it wasn't writer's block. So if you are actually struggling with writer's block, check the characters. Really, really check the characters. Okay, people, that is it for today's Screenwriting Sunday. No, screenwriting Saturday. Sorry about that. And I'll be back. I'm going to watch football this weekend. So, um, Actually, I'm going to watch football today. It's 3.27 a.m. in the morning, and I better go to bed so I can wake up early and watch all the, watch the Browns win. I'm going to watch the Browns. I hope, I'm hoping the Browns win. I'm hoping the Bills win. Hoping Aaron Rodgers loses. Oh, I can't stand that oversensitive guy. <laughs> like, do I sound counterphobic? <laughs> anyway. That is about it, people. I will talk to you on Monday. I'm going to take off on Sunday.